Now, I know every person in this room, I'm smart enough to know that not all of you are looking forward to 2012. Uh, in fact, there's a little dread. Uh, 2011 may have not been that good. And you're afraid that 2012 is going to be like it. I don't know what 2012 holds, but you know what? God does. God does. And He's bigger than 2012. And He's bigger than 2011. Folks, God created time. So He has authority over time. I want you just to lean back and whatever it is that you're afraid of, whatever it is that has you a little anxious, it may not be fear, it just may be a little anxiety, a little worry, a little uncertainty. It may be vocationally. It may be a job. It may be family issues. It may be health issues. It may be, it may be not, it may not be your health personally, but it may be someone in your family who's just dear to you. It may be a health issue with them. Whatever it is, I could go on and on and on, but whatever it is, I want you just to give it to Him. You see, if we clutch those things with our hands, we can't take hold of Him. We can't reach out and, 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 I mean, what I'm imagining right here is, is, is he's got his arms around us and we just put our arms on top of his and we just enjoy that, that hug. We just enjoy that security. The Bible, I mean, scripture says that he will never leave us. He will never forsake us. Father, right now, We just declare our dependence on You. Father, apart from You, we can do nothing. But Your Word says, in Christ, we can do all things. Father, Your Word says we are more than conquerors. And so, Lord, we give You those things that cause fear in our life right now. We give you those things, Father, that make us anxious and uncertain, that draw our attention away from you. We give you those things. Father, you will allow nothing into our life that hasn't been filtered through your fingers. And so, Father, we can be assured that whatever comes, along with it comes the help that we need to get through it. So Lord, this morning we just rejoice. And Father, we look forward to this new year. I pray this morning, Lord, after we've looked at your word, we'll look forward to it even more. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now I love to travel. I love to just get in the truck or the car and ride. My daddy used to do that, and, and to be honest with you, I hated it, okay, because we never knew where we were going. We were just basically told to get in the car. I sat on one side, my brother sat on the other side, and never the twain were supposed to meet in the back seat, if you understand what I'm, if you had a brother. My dad, we'd just go. We'd get up, we'd get up at midnight, and go see an aunt I had in Georgia, and we get there by breakfast. Uh, now, they knew we were coming, but my brother and I didn't know what was going on. But I just, over the years, as, as I got older, I just learned I love to ride and, and to go. And you know what? When you, when you strike out, it's pretty easy to get lost. 
Now, I know none of the men in here is going to say amen, but it, it's easy to get lost when you're traveling to or through a place you have never been before. Uh, now, we have GPSs now and all that kind of stuff, but from what I understand, that hadn't helped most men. Amen? I figured a few ladies would say amen. Okay, y'all are going to hang back, okay? You think I'm leading you into a trap. But you know what? You can get lost traveling in a matter of moments. I mean, it doesn't take hours and hours and hours. It One turn, one, one jog in the road when you should have went right and you went left, and you can be lost. You can, you, you, you can not be going where you think you're going. In fact, you can be lost and not even realize it. About 25 years ago, it's, it's hard for me to believe that it's been that long, but Kathy and I, we took Amber, and we took my mother-in-law, Molly, and we took my sister-in-law, Julie, and we went to Disney World. I get world and land. Anyway, we went to Mickey's house, okay, in Orlando. And uh, we, we, went, we went down to Montgomery, and we, I, I had all I mean, I was at that age where you, you look on the map, and it looks like a shortcut, and you, you take it. Instead of going to Atlanta and I-75 straight down, you know, you know what I'm talking about. We went through Union City and ended up in Tifton, Georgia, and hit I-75 I and went south. It, I mean, we, we, we did it, and it took us probably 10 or 12 hours. And uh, I'll never forget, we had a great time, we were exhausted, but we were all tired of each other after about a week, okay? Uh, we, were, we had all, we had, we'd rented one room, and we had a rollaway bed, so I was the only guy, and uh, it, it had been a pretty tough week. And we, we were headed home, and, and they were exa- we were all exhausted. And so as we were driving up through Florida and, and, and then into South Georgia on I-75, we're getting close to Tifton, where we were going to exit, and we were going to head back uh, west toward home. Now, all the way down, it had been east, 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 east. And, and in my head, I had east, but I knew we were supposed to go west. And so we... we Get off the exit, and by this time, it's really quiet in the car because the other four had gone to sleep. I mean, they were, they were dead to the world. And I pull up to the stop sign, and there's the highway sign. I gotta get this right, cause I still mess this up, okay? East is this way, west is this way. In my head, I knew we were supposed to go west. But, Something kept saying, turn right, turn right, turn right. So I turned right. You know, I thought, hey, we're on the right road. Everything's cool. Man, I poured gas to it. No traffic. Wasn't a lot of traffic either way. And, and I'm just wearing it out down the highway. Uh, everybody's asleep. I'm doing my own thing, thinking that everything's okay. So over the next hour, I wore it out. I am making some really good time. The, the road sort of straightened out, and it kind of flattened out. And, and I'm just having a great time by myself. And all of a sudden, the train begins to change. And you go from, you know, you go from loblolly pine trees and sweet gums and stuff like around here to all of a sudden, it's big, tall pine trees and palmetto bushes. And I thought, well, that's a little strange. I don't remember this on the way down, but... Ah, what the hey, you know, and just poured the gas to it. I mean, there's no traffic, and I'm, I'm just, I'm just wearing it out. I didn't remember seeing that driving down, but I thought, well, you know, 
maybe I was daydreaming or something. This kind of looks like the way it looks when you get toward the beach. Meh. No big deal. And then all of a sudden a road sign flashed up. It said Brunswick, Georgia, 60 miles. And, and I kind of liked that. And I thought, no, there's no way. That, that's, they got somebody put a wrong road sign. And I'm serious. I'm having this conversation with myself, okay? And no, nah, there's no way. There's no way. And I, just, I poured it on some more. About 20 miles later, another one flashed up. And it said Brunswick, Georgia, 40 miles. Now, I'm dumb, okay? But two in a row is not a coincidence. So I realized, okay, what did I do? What did I do? I realized that I was lost, okay? Now, I was on the right highway. I want you to understand this. I was on the right highway, but I was going in the wrong direction. And so what do I do? Well, everybody's asleep, and I think, okay, I'll ease the speed down. I won't slam the brakes on and make a turn like that. I'll just slow down. And I executed one of the most beautiful, the smoothest 180 degree U-turns you've ever seen. The only problem was is when I got it executed and began to get back up to speed, eight eyes popped open all over the car and they asked me what's going on. Well, I tried to explain best I could about I-75, stop sign, a little confusion, but everything's okay, we'll be back there. And then somebody asked me, how far did we drive out of the way? And I said, 60 miles, and, and they begin to compute. And all of a sudden, I've added two extra hours to the trip. Now, it got quiet again, but nobody was asleep, okay? And I was afraid they were going to put me out in the palmetto bushes and the pine trees, but they didn't. It's easy to be on the right road, but going in the wrong direction. It's easy. And it's especially easy in our relationship with with Jesus Christ, in our personal relationship with the Lord. It's easy to be on the right road, doing the things we think we should be doing, but heading in the opposite direction from where He is. You know what? You can do that and not even know it. You can be doing a hundred good things, and we'll talk about this in a minute. And you know what? You'd be leaving the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit, in the rearview mirror. I mean, you're wearing it out, doing good things. But God's over here, and you're over here. You know, God desires, the one thing He desires from us is a personal relationship. A father-child relationship. An intimate relationship. Now, we don't like that word. We're afraid of that word. But but you know what? God wants a heart-to-heart relationship with us. You know, for all the reasons He died on the cross, one of them and one of the main ones was to restore that heart-to-heart relationship. So there wouldn't be anything between you and Him or me and Him. Nothing. And he, He wants us to learn to recognize His voice so that we know what He's talking about 100% of the time. You know, if you get get three hits out of ten, you you can play Major League Baseball forever. But you know what? 30% of the time, knowing what God wants is not good enough. God wants 100%. And He's given us everything we need in Christ. 
and in His Holy Spirit to do that. And so He wants to walk with us day in and day out. There's a picture of that over in Genesis when, when the Scripture says that, that He would come in the cool of the day and He would, he would walk and He would talk with, with, with Adam and with Eve. You know, when Jesus, Jesus died to restore that. And folks, the Father wants to walk with us. He wants to talk with us. He wants to be able to give us our instructions. He wants to answer our questions. Do any of you, be honest with me, do any of you have some questions you'd like to ask God? I do. I got a whole list of them. Now, I'm not going to be as bold to say when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask Him. I'm not going to say that. But you know what? If I've got some questions that, that I wouldn't mind asking Him. And, and he want, I think He wants to answer them. I, I think He wants to guide our steps. Those of you that, that have had children, you get behind that, that little baby when they're beginning to learn to walk and you put your hand on either side and you guide them. That's what He wants to do to us and to do for us. And He just wants to communicate His love for us. Just like we did a few minutes ago when we just leaned back. He loves that. Now, that may be over the top for your picture of God, but folks, that's the God of this book. For God so loved us that He gave His Son. First John says God is love. I mean, He invented it. He wants relationship with us. But the sad thing is, sin creates some issues with Adam and Eve's relationship with God. But Jesus came and He restored that. But the problem is, is that when, when that sin came into their life, it caused them to run and hide. And though although Christ has restored our relation with Him, you know what we tend to do most of the time? We run and we hide. Because we're afraid of being intimate with the Lord. We're afraid of, of letting down our guard. We're afraid of, 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 of just being who we are. We've got to protect ourselves. We've got to, got to keep those coping techniques and that camouflage in place because, you know, that's what we do with everybody else. Even the people that we are closest to, there's still a little bit of this. And if there's a little bit of this with them, guess what there is with God? This close, no closer. But you know what? This close is not close enough for God. Here's a secret you may not realize. He sees through the camouflage. He doesn't care about the coping techniques. He's not worried about what's wrong or, or what's not wrong inside there. He just wants to be close to you, and He wants you to be close with Him. I have a friend. She comes. Miss Sylvia comes to this church. She has a definition for, for intimacy. It's into me you see. And that's what God, that's the kind of relationship God wants with us. He wants us to be able to look into Him and to open ourselves up freely so that He might look into us. He already looks into us. But there's a difference when you willingly open yourself up. He wants intimacy with us. And folks, the, real, the reality is we hunger for that kind of relationship. But we fear it. Because... When you have a relationship like that, it strips away all the stuff 
And who we are is right out there on display. And I don't know about you, but I'm, I wouldn't be real comfortable if who I was in every little nook and cranny got flashed right up here on the screen. But you know what? God's not offended by that. God's working on that. I don't have to get perfect for Him to love me. He already loves me. And He's perfecting me. And He's perfecting you. He's maturing us in Christ. So what happens is we're not comfortable with that. And what tends to happen is we avoid that depth of relationship with God. And we, what we do is we take the tools that God has given us to build relationship, and we concentrate on the tools instead of the God who gave the tools to us. Now, what in the world am I talking about? Well, we t- we've taken relationship, and what we've done is we've broken it into a series of spiritual things to do or religious activities, or a series of steps, 12 steps. to I mean, I, there's all kind of books at the bookstores. And listen, I'm not throwing rocks at anybody's book. 12 steps to this, 7 steps to this, 3 steps to that. You know what? It may have taken that gentleman who wrote that, or that lady who wrote that 12 t- steps, or 7 steps, or 3 steps. It might not take you, but 5. Or it may take you 105. So there's some great principles, but it's not a, if I read this book and I do what it says, I'll have a relationship with God. That's not how relationship works. I mean, how many of you got a marriage manual when you you got married and you read it and everything's worked perfectly like the book said it would? That's a joke now, okay? (laughs) There's not one. There's no formula. There are some things we can do. But there's no formula that if I do A and B, I'll get C. Instead, God just wants a heart-to-heart relationship. But what happens is we substitute activities, and we call it relationship. Now, what kind of activities am I talking about? Well, I'm talking about good things. Now, I want you to hear this, okay? I don't want you to leave here and say, Nelson said you shouldn't do this and these things are wrong. This is not what I'm saying. We substitute good things for the best thing. We substitute things like reading our Bible. I believe we're supposed to read our Bible, okay? I'm going to say that again. I believe that we are supposed to read our Bible every day, okay? We're supposed to pray, but... You know what? Sometimes we substitute prayer for relationship with God. I believe we're supposed to memorize and meditate on Scripture. That's what Scripture says. I believe that we're supposed to witness. I believe that we're supposed to do mission work, and we're to fast, and we're to give, and to worship. But you know what? All of these things are good, and they're necessary. But none of these things ensure that you or I have a relationship with God. In other words, you can't take your checklist... I prayed this morning, I read my Bible this morning, I had my devotions this morning, I've shared the gospel three times today, just like Pastor so-and-so said I should. You know what, I'm going to fast lunch, and, and I'm going to meditate on Scripture, I'm going to memorize two verses today because I'm on this plan. None of that ensures that you have a real relationship with God. They are necessary things, but they are tools. They're not God. All of them are part of a healthy relationship with God. But none of these things can be used as proof that you have a relationship with God. Am I making sense? 
I'm not condemning them, okay? But if that's all that you have, you have no relationship. Folks, I'm going to tell you something. When you start reading your Bible every day, it'll become a drag. I can't believe our pastor said that. I'm just being honest with you. If you have no relationship and you're not working on a relationship with God, folks, these words become dry. And all of a sudden, I've got to pray for an hour. Oh, my gosh. I've been praying as hard as I can for 45 minutes. I've got nothing else to say. Here's a caveat here, okay? Maybe you don't need to say anything. Maybe that's what's wrong with the prayer. Okay, I'm getting back over here. I'm getting off track, okay? My point is, is that that's what's happened to most of us. We've taken the things of God... And we've substituted them in the place of God. That's what most churches teach us to do. That's what most pastors learn in seminary, and that's what they teach. You've got to have a daily devotional time. You've got to do this, 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 you've got to do this. You know what I found out? I was in seminary halfway through. I was in my 40s, okay? I knew a whole bunch of facts about God. In fact, I, knew, I thought I knew everything about God. But all of a sudden I realized I didn't know Him. Not that I'm lost, okay? And I want you to hear me this morning. I'm not talking about being lost or saved. I'm going to use the word lost some. And it doesn't mean lost in the sense that I don't know Jesus. It means lost in the sense that I made a turn out there and I'm not where I think I am and I'm not where I need to be. Everybody with me? You're all tracking with me. Okay. You know what, though, as as people, we love tools and we love lists. Amen? If I do this, this, and this, then I must be okay. It helps me measure where I am. And and the tools are important, but the tools are not God. If I read my Bible every day, if I pray every day, if, if if I help the poor, if I give, if I do and do and do and do and do, and you can keep adding do's as long as you want to, Jesus addressed a group of individuals. Now, most of the time when we use the word Pharisees, it's with contempt and and disgust. But the Pharisees were the guardians of the Word in their day. They were the, the conservatives, okay? They, 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 they were the, now, they'd added some things to it, but guess what? The conservatives have done the same thing. And there was a battle in their day between those who wanted to throw out parts of the Scripture, the Sadducees, and they didn't believe certain things. And, and the Pharisees were tenacious, and Jesus comes to him, and I want you to listen to what he says in John chapter 5, 39, and 40. And I, I want you to hear what he's saying. Don't just read over this verse. Jesus said to him, You search the Scriptures because you think that in them, what is them? In the Scriptures, you have eternal life. And it's these that bear witness of me. And yet you're unwilling to come to me that you may have life. What they had done, folks, is exactly what we do. They had become consumed with the things rather than the one who gave them the things. They had become consumed with every jot and tittle of Scripture, every verse, every commandment, every prohibition. 
every this, every that, and they were meticulous. They counted, when they copied Scripture, they counted letters, they counted words to make sure that they made no mistakes. They were, the reason we have the Scriptures we have today is because they were so meticulous. But, this became their God. Instead of this being just the Word of God. This is important. The Word of God is important. But folks, this is not God. The activities that I'm talking about have value. They're important. But they only point us to Christ, folks. They're not Christ. And without Christ, the one who gives us life through relationship, guess what we have? We don't have relationship. We don't have the life He intended for us to have. Our problem is, is we want a scale to operate on. We want to be able to weigh our spiritual activities, our do's and don'ts. And we want to call that relationships. But you know what? Activities, although they do take time. I mean, it takes time to read your Bible. Amen? It takes time to pray. It takes time uh, to share the gospel. Although they do take time, they don't require an investment of our heart. Always. Now, if you're doing it the right way, you know what? You have to invest your heart. But it's real easy to make a turn somewhere along the way and begin to read Scripture so that I can cover my reading for the day instead of meeting with my best friend to hear what he has to say. You know what? Relationship requires a full investment of your heart takes everything if I don't if I hold anything back that relationship is not what it should be if I if there are secrets in here that relationship can't be what it's supposed to be we can be doing all those things we can be praying we can be reading the Bible we can cast out demons we can heal the sick we can worship we can witness we can fast we can give we can go all over the community and all over the world and share the gospel and you know what? We can be going in the wrong direction. We can be lost. We can not be where we think we are, going in the direction that we think we're going. That's the definition of lost. And folks, the sad thing is we're usually unaware of it until we run out of gas, emotionally speaking, spiritually speaking. And we wind up in one of those places on the side of the road, dry, and dusty, burnt out, wondering, God, where are you? Our problem is we often fall in love with the things of God instead of God. We love to do the stuff instead of being still and quiet. So what we try to do is we frantically try to earn God's favor, thinking that if I do this and I do this and I do this and I do this, and if I do more of this and more of this and more of this and more of this, God will love me more. Folks, that is a lie that did not originate in heaven. It originated in hell. See, the devil knows that if he can get you busy, you'll lose focus on relationships. Oh, you'll work. You'll work your fingers to the bone. 
but you'll never look up and you'll never seek that relationship. You know what, folks? We can't earn God's love by doing. But we can experience God's love by being. There's a difference. We'll just be who He created us to be. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Some of you are exhausted this morning, spiritually speaking. Maybe even physically, emotionally. You've been running, you've been running after what you thought was God. And for whatever reason, it's like being under a brass heaven. You've thrown prayer after prayer up. You've, you've dug deeper into how to pray and how to read your Bible. And, and all those things are important. Please don't hear me say they're not. They are important. But that's not relationship. Those are the tools that help build relationship. You've been doing good and the right things. But you're empty. Somewhere along the way, you took a right turn when you should have took a left turn. Or if you want to be church correct, you took a right, a left turn when you should have took a right Anyway, I had trouble learning what left and right was, much less east and west, okay? I, I had it written on my hands when I was a little kid so I could learn it. Most of us have been performing the things of God instead of just being intimate with God. And we're not where we thought we should be. We've arrived somewhere different than we thought we were going to. Like I said, we're lost. Now, not lost in the sense that I don't know Jesus, just lost in the sense that, you know what, I've gotten to a destination and God doesn't seem to be there. And I can't figure out why He's not. I followed the road. I was on the right road. And we were. We just took a wrong turn. Now, I've said all that to say this. If that's where you find yourself this morning, you need a personal revival. You need a personal revival. I've figured out over the past few years that, that God has called me to be a revivalist. Now, that's not to go all over the country and preach what most people call revivals. They're just meetings, okay? God shows up sometimes. Sometimes God doesn't show up. That's not a revival. A revivalist is someone who calls the body of Christ back to revival. He didn't give me the gift of, of, of being an evangelist. He gave me the responsibility to, to do evangelism. I'm to share the gospel. But you know what? When I preach, thousands don't get up and come forward like they do when Billy Graham preaches. And that's because he's given me a different responsibility. He's called me to call the body of Christ back to him, the bride, back to the bridegroom. And folks, if you're here this morning and you're dry and you're dusty and things are not exactly where you want them, then what you need is a personal revival. Revival is a coming back to life. Okay? Lost people don't get revival. Do, do we understand that? They're dead. They're not near dead. They're dead. Okay? That's what the Scripture says. We were dead in our trespasses and sin. And so you can't revive a dead person. But you can revive something that's almost died. And if Jesus lives in your heart this morning, you're not dead. You may feel like you are, but you're not. 
And so there can be a revival, a reviving. Revival is a recovery of, of losing something. It's a renewal of energy and strength. It's a return. It's a restoration. And nothing brings personal revival like intimate relationship. I'm going to tell you something. When you get close to the flame, you start to heat up. You don't believe me? Build you a fire this afternoon. I understand it's going to be pretty cool tonight. You build you a fire in your fireplace, and you get as close as you can. See if you don't warm up. Folks, when you go after the presence of God, the intimate presence of God, you'll warm up. Moses glowed when he'd been in God's presence. He was different. People didn't have to ask him where he'd been. They knew where he'd been. A personal relationship, an intimate relationship with God charges up our batteries. It revs our engines up, in a sense. So the question that I'm going to ask you today is do... I want, I'm not asking you, okay? But I want us to ask ourselves. I don't want you to ask your spouse or your friends. I want you to ask yourself. Do I need personal revival? You know, every one of us have to discern our own need, not the people around us. This is personal. God tends to throw up a road sign every once in a while and let you know when you're, on, when you're going the wrong direction. Just like when I was headed down that highway, every so often there was a sign. It's up to me to read the sign and pay attention to it. The first one, I just argued with. The second one, I thought, okay, big boy, you can be a fool and keep arguing, and the next thing you'll see is the Atlantic coast. And when they wake up, they're not going to be happy. You know what? God does the same thing. He, he just puts the road signs out in front of us. Stop. Bridge out. Trouble ahead. But God. But God. But God. All of us, have to ask those questions. Are the signs popping up? How quick are they popping up? How many have I run past? What do they say? All those things will help us find where we're at. They'll give us a location. Where am I? Where are you today? What are your coordinates? What's your latitude and your longitude? Forget about your GPS. God, where am I? in relationship to where you want me to be, where you're at. You see, we are to join God in what He's doing. God is not to join us in what we're doing. And the quicker we learn that, the better off we will be. We find where God's working, we join Him. Amazing things take place. Or we can pray that God would join us and we can wander around in the high grass out there forever. Jesus addressed the same issue I'm talking about with a group of believers in the book of Revelation. And over the next couple of weeks, we're just going to take this passage and, and, and I'm just going to talk to you a little bit about personal revival and then revival in the church. Here's the reality. Unless revival comes personally in some people's lives, it will not come corporately in the life of the church. I'll say this again in a few minutes. There's got to be the spark of personal revival before the flames of corporate revival begin to burn. And it takes place, folks, when we get intimate and real with God. Jesus addressed this church. And I'm going to make a few comments and then I'm going to be done. But in Revelation chapter 2, 
verse 1 through 3, Jesus said this. He says, To the angel, to the, to the messenger, to the pastor of the church in Ephesus, write, The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this. Now, all of a sudden, Jesus is saying, Here's what I've got to say. And he begins to commend this church. And I want you to listen to the commendation, okay? I want you to listen to this church. He says, I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance, and that you cannot endure evil men, and you put, those to, the te- you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and are not. And you found them to be false, and you have perseverance, and have endured for my name's sake, and have not grown weary. Man, I'm going to tell you something. If I'm standing in line waiting for commendation, these are good things, okay? These are good things. They paint a picture of a dynamic group of believers, a dynamic church that was located in Ephesus. This, this church was busy about the business of God. They were doing good things. They were working hard. Their service was filled with activities. They were a serving church. They were reading the Scriptures. They were praying. They were giving. They were healing the sick, casting out the demons. They were doing miracles. They were doing the stuff of Christianity. They were doing the same thing in this church that the, that the early apostles had done 40 or so years earlier. The same thing that Paul did when he came to the city of Ephesus and established the church. They were doing that stuff. They were serving church. They were not half-hearted. They weren't lukewarm. They were on fire, and everybody in town knew about them. I mean, they knew who they were. They were a serving church. They were also, the Bible says here, a steadfast church, meaning that they hung in there, this is the best definition, they hung in there like a rusty fish hook. If you've ever got a rusty fish hook hung in something, it's impossible to get it loose. You just about have to cut the, the, the barb end off. And pull it apart that way. They wouldn't let go. They were tenacious. He uses words like perseverance and, and, and endure and, 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 and words like that. And, and this is Jesus. Now hear me, please. He's not wasting words, okay? Every one of these words He's chosen out of a myriad of words He could have used. They, they have meaning. They didn't allow anyone or anything to move them from the foundation of truth that that church had been established on. You know, the Apostle Paul established that church. And they didn't move from the doctrine they had been taught. Their faith had been tested. And not they weren't just called names. They were persecuted. Okay, There were people that had, had been to the... To the, to the uh, I guess you could call it the Colosseum there in Ephesus, and had fought the wild beast. There, there had been some who had been put to death by fire. They had paid the ultimate price. Some of them had. But you know what? They didn't blink. No matter how hot it got in Ephesus, this group remained true. They hadn't taken the easy way out. They hadn't compromised their walk of faith. They were steadfast. They were also orthodox. Okay? Orthodoxy is important. Okay? It is important to, to believe the right things, to believe what Scripture teaches. And they knew the teachings of Jesus. They knew what His apostles had taught. And you know what? They were willing to test any message that was preached in their pulpit. 
And I'm going to take a side note over here and step over here. You don't need to just take what I say as the gospel truth. This is the gospel, okay? You need to test everything I say but what the Word of God says. And if it won't stand up, then you need to let me know, okay? But this church was willing to do that. They didn't care what preacher or pastor or evangelist or apostle or whoever it was showed up on Sunday to, to give a lesson. They didn't care how many degrees he had behind his name, how many times he was on TV, what number of books he had written, what his, his uh, pedigree was and all that stuff. They tested him. And they made sure what he was teaching was what they'd been taught. They were orthodox. They knew the doctrines of the faith had been handed down to them. They weren't willing to give an inch on them. You know what? This church was enduring. They were like bulldogs. I mean, they had grabbed hold in a city. And folks, some, we read Scripture, and, we, and we, don't, we don't... A lot of times we miss some things. Ephesus was one of the wickedest cities in the world. It was when Paul went there to preach the gospel, and it was still just as wicked with this church in it. This church was flourishing, but you know what? They were in a wicked city. It was a city filled with idolatry, with demonization, with witchcraft, and probably a lot of other things. But those three things we know because Paul shows us that in in, uh, Acts 18. He talks about how when he was there preaching that he ran afoul of the people that worshipped Artemis or Diana. Diana. Diana was, was, the, was the goddess of the hunt. She was the goddess of a whole bunch of things. Ultimately, she was the mother goddess, in a sense. And the biggest business in this city, and this was a huge city. This wasn't a little town, okay? The biggest business, the most productive business, were the guys who made the little metal idols of, of Diana. And when, when the church moved in and Paul began to preach, it cut into their business, and they didn't like it. Well, guess what? Forty years later, this church is still preaching, and they still don't like it. it this was a, a city of a cult and witchcraft. If you read Acts 18, you'll find that, that Paul or, or Luke records for us how the people who came to Christ brought their books and their, their teachings and their, their scrolls on the occult, and they made a pile and burned them, and he even gives us the price. Now, it's not just there for whatever. He wants us to understand how many there were. He says literally they were, they were, the price was worth 50,000 drachma. Now, none of us really care what a drachma is, do we? We really don't. But a drachma was a day's wage in Ephesus. Okay? There were 50,000 days' wages in that pile. Now, you take your day's wage, and you multiply that times 50,000, and you divide out holidays and everything, and roughly, there's about 137, 138, 139 years worth a salary there for one person. It was huge. And these are just the people that came to Christ. This doesn't count for all the other people in the city. This is what this church faced. A city filled with witchcraft. Paul talks about the 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 the, the, the uh, exorcists that were there, the sons of Sceva, if you remember that story. 
not going to go into it. But there was a great deal of demonization, and there always is where there's the occult and idolatry. And so this was the, this was the, the soil that this church had been planted in. This is the, 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 the ground that this church had to thrive in. This is the people they're going to to witness. Idolaters, people that are demonized, and people that deal with the occult. And yet this church was enduring. It didn't give up. It was what I'm trying to say here is it was a tough city to be in. And the Lord says, I know your deeds. I know your toil. I know your perseverance. I know that you can't endure evil men. You you put them to the test. You you decide which ones are fault and which ones are not. And you have perseverance and you've endured and you've not grown weary. In other words, this, this church was just as robust as it had been the day Paul planted it. Now, let's just be real honest here. If you and I were judging this church based on what we just heard and based on what the Lord Jesus had said, what kind of score would you have given her? A plus? Superior, 10 out of 10 on the ministry ranking. She was doing the things every church should do, and she was doing them very well. And by all accounts, she was a very successful church. This was a very successful group. You know what successful churches that are doing these things are filled with people who see needs and they meet them? And that's what they were doing. They were involved in every phase of ministry, doctrinally, devotionally, they were sound. But you know what, today, the reality of it is, is that we're not great in this church. And the reason we're not is because it would be real easy to be this church. I don't, probably won't get an amen there. But I mean, if, if I'm sitting and reading, and I read all seven of the churches, this is probably the one, you know what, God, if... This I like. Kind of, yeah, I want to be. I want to be doctrinally sound. I want to be pure. I want to be. I want to be tenacious and persevering. And I want to be. You know, I want to be toiling for you. And I want to do all these things. And the reason is, is because we have come to believe that religious activity must mean holiness. Orthodoxy is next to godliness. Hard work, good deeds will make God love us more. Now. If I were to ask you that right now, you'd say, no, 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 no. But folks, what we say with our mouth and how we live our lives are two different things. And we fall into that trap of doing, doing, doing. In other words, if I believe right and I do right, then I must have a right relationship with God. In other words, I measure my relationship with God by the things I'm doing and what I believe. Now, that's where most Christians are. That's where sounds pretty good. It'd play well in most churches. The only exception is that's wrong. And God doesn't care for that. That's not what God is trying to communicate to us. I want you to listen to what Jesus says in Revelation 2.4. But. But. A little three-letter conjunction. How many of you, you don't have to raise your hand, have you have ever been in an assessment, have been assessed by your boss? And all of a sudden you're getting this stuff and you're starting to feel real well about yourself and the job you've been doing and all of a sudden there's that little word in, but. 
But means there's going to be a contrast here. Okay? Jesus says, but I have this against you. That you've left your first love. There's a problem. They're doing everything well except the main thing that they're supposed to be doing well. All the, all the, the myriad of things that, that we think are so important, they fall down here in what Jesus thinks is important. It's not whether I'm praying. It's not where I'm reading my Bible. It's not whether I visit the sick. It's not where I share the gospel. It's not whether I tithe. It's not whether I do this, this, and this. It's what am I doing with the King of kings and the Lord of lords. What's my relationship like with Him? If my relationship is right with Him, the rest of these things seem to take care of themselves. What He's saying to them in a manner of speaking is, you guys have taken a wrong turn. You're on the right highway. You're just headed the wrong direction. You're lost. You're not going the right place, and you're not going to end up in the right place. You're reading your devotions. Man, you guys are wearing out your one-year Bibles. And the tithers, you guys are monster tithers. You guys tithe down even to the dime. You don't never miss anything. You're prayer warriors. I mean... When it's all said and done, you are church workers extraordinary. That's what Jesus is saying. Let's just put it in our language. That's what He's saying. You guys have it all together, but... Lord, why didn't you have to put that one little word in there? But... Lord, look at everything I'm doing. But... You've left your first love. Obviously, and I've said this already this morning, working for God has its place. Okay? No doubt it's it's of great importance. The Lord Jesus commended these believers early on through the Apostle Paul. I want you to listen to what he says in Ephesians chapter eight, or chapter two, verse eight through ten. He says, For by grace have you been saved through faith. That not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not as a result of works, that no one should boast. And then he goes into verse nine, he says, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Aha! There's the good works, Nelson. I'm not sure I believe what you're talking about. Listen to me. Hang with me. Created for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The Lord Jesus says, But I have this one thing against you. You've left your first love. Doing the works, folks, is not the preeminent thing that we're supposed to be doing. It's not the most important. It's not the chief. It's not the ultimate desire of God's heart. God has already prepared us to do works. That's what He's saying in this verse. We have been prepared to do works. The problem is, if we don't walk with God, we will never learn which works we're supposed to do. We're not all supposed to be doing the same thing. At the same time. And so if I don't have a relationship, I can't ever learn what the work is that God wants me to be doing. 
And so I'm running around here bouncing off all kinds of things, looking for something that I need to be doing, 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 doing. And God says, be still, be quiet, and spend just a few minutes with me. Let me warm you up, and I'll tell you what you need to be doing. How many of you have ever done something and it was a struggle to do. And no matter how hard you wanted it to be enjoyable, it was a good thing. I'm not saying, I'm, listen, we're not talking about bad things and sin today, okay? We're just talking, we're talking about good things. How many of you have ever done good things? It's like pulling teeth. You didn't enjoy it any. You know what? Your spiritual gift probably a million miles from that good thing. That's somebody else's job. That's why. There's been a few times in my life where I've done something and it's like the sweet spot on a baseball bat. I mean, those of you that played baseball, you can tell when the ball hits the sweet spot in that bat. It just, there's a feeling. You just know it. And there are other times when it hits all other places and you may get a hit or a home run, but it, just, it, it, was, just, it, was, it was work. But when it hits that sweet spot, it, there's, no, there's no struggle to it. There's no uh, exertion to it. It just happens. And folks, the sweet spot, you will never find the sweet spot God has for you without the relationship. You just won't do it. But, folks, if, if we don't take those walks with God, and we don't spend that time with God in the cool of the day, if we don't constantly nurture that intimacy, we're going to take a wrong turn somewhere along the way. And you know what? We may never recognize it. The Ephesians had abandoned their care and their concern for their love relationship with God. Their attention had turned from the devotion of God or devotion with God to the devotion of the things of God. And you know what? It's real easy to do that. Let me put it this way. And this may sound a little harsh. But this is true. The Ephesians had fallen in love with the bride of Christ. I want you to think about what I'm saying. They, they had fallen in love with the church. And God calls that idolatry. Because the church is not our bride. She's His bride. They were committing spiritual adultery, even though all the things they were doing were good things. They were simply not giving their full attention to Him. And so what had happened is all these things of God had become idols that drew them away from God. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. In the story, in the Scripture, in the New Testament, Jesus had some very special friends who lived in Bethany. Uh, their names were Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Most of us are familiar with, with Lazarus. Jesus raised him from the dead. But it seems that whenever Jesus was passing through Bethany or going that direction, he'd stop at their house. Now, let's just imagine, let's, for, for the sake of the story, that it's one of those days. He knocks on the door. Guess who peeks through the curtains to see who it is? It's Martha. Martha peeks through the door, she opens the door, she welcomes Jesus, but when Jesus is still in, in mid-sentence, she turns with a flash and she's off. 
She's busy. She's, she's got to get the house straightened up. She's got to get a meal prepared. She's, the Lord's here. I, I've got to, I got to feed Jesus. I got to, I can't just feed him the snacks we eat every day. I got to give him the best stuff. And so off she goes and she is wearing it out. Now she's got a sister who just kind of sits down at Jesus' feet. In fact, to get in the house, he probably has to kind of push her out of the way with his leg. I mean, she, every time you see Mary, she's at the feet of Jesus. Martha's running around like a, like a hornet, you know. She's all over the place. Mary's just, she's just like this, and her eyes are this big around, and, you know, she's breathing real slow, and, and, and she's just, every word that pours out of his mouth, she is just all over it. Mary was at peace in her spirit. Martha's frantic. Martha is distracted in her spirit. You know what? A frantic pace and a distracted heart will always take you in the wrong direction. It will never draw you close to Jesus. It will always push you away. And the same thing happened every time Jesus comes to visit. And one day, Martha's about had enough. I mean, she's about had enough looking in there at Mary who's gaga-eyed and her eyes are, you know, big warm pools or whatever and she's just, she's not making any noise and Jesus and her are having a conversation except Jesus is talking and she's listening and Martha's had enough of it. She's exhausted. She's fixed this big, wonderful seven-course meal and everything's perfect and, and she's worn out. And so she just comes running right in there. Now you know they're friends because she felt like she could do this. She just walks right up to Jesus and, and she's got a bone to pick with Him. She's got an issue. There's something on her heart. She's got things to take care of. Lord, what about my sister Mary? Mary doesn't ever do anything. She doesn't help me. Lord, make her help me. I've got things to do. Now listen to me. You will always have things to do. It's like what Jesus talks about the poor. The poor will always be with us and there will always be jobs to do. We will always have things to do. This is what she says in Luke chapter 10, verse 40. She says, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? In other words, she's telling on her sister. Well, if you do care, she's kind of trying to push Jesus into that position. I can't do anything with her, Lord. You do something with her. Then tell her to help me. Now, let's be real honest. At my house, if we have visitors, I can just about tell you who will be Martha and who will be Mary. It's just the nature of the beast, okay? I understand. That's just our personalities. Think about you. Think about you. This is what Jesus says. Martha, Martha, you're worried and bothered about so many good things, but only a few things are necessary. Really, only one. For Mary has chosen the good part, which is, shall not be taken away from her. Now, to put it in the words of Revelation chapter 2, verse 4, Martha, Martha, you have left your first love. You couldn't get a better contrast what I'm trying to talk about. Martha's doing good things. They're necessary. If anybody's going to eat, somebody has to make the meal. Somebody has to make the sandwiches. Somebody has to pour the tea. Mary, though, is being. Martha's doing. Mary's in the midst of a personal revival, and Martha is doing a great job. She's serving, she's ministering, but she's missing a moment that she can never get back. It's an intimate moment. It's one in which her own personal relationship with Jesus could have grown. What about you today? 
Again, that's the question we have to answer. Not what about him, not about her, what about... It's what about me? Do I need a personal revival in my life? Folks, there can't be a change in your life until you take time to assess your own personal relationship with Jesus. Is it where it needs to be? If not, why not? Have you let things kind of go? Because I need to be doing all this stuff. I mean, this has got to get done. I got to be here. I got to be there. I got to be at this meeting. I got to be at that meeting. I got, God, I got to read my Bible this morning before I go to work. I don't have time. I got to pray. Are you going in the right direction or have somewhere along the way you turn, taken a turn the wrong way? Folks, this is not condemnation. I mean, this is not a sermon on condemnation. This is, this is a sermon on reality where we all live, sometimes every day. It's time to read the road signs. And I said this earlier, but there can't be a fire of revival in this community or in this church until the sparks begin to fly off us individually. Do every one of us have to have a personal revival? Boy, I wish that would happen, okay, because you couldn't kill the fire. But you know what? There are going to be some in here this morning say, hey, you know what? I'm okay where I'm at. I like it just like it is. But there may be a few in here that say, you know what? I'm hungry. I'm thirsty. I want something different, but you know what? I hadn't been desperate. All of a sudden, you know what? I find myself desperate. Whatever it costs, whatever it takes, I want more of God. Now hear me. You won't get more of God by doing things for God. You'll get more of God by drawing closer to Him. Most of the time by just being quiet and drawing up beside Him, letting Him run his, wrap His arms around you and letting Him hug you. That's where you get the most of Jesus. See, Moses got, got that glow from being in the presence of God, not doing the things of God. You know what? Lost people could care less about religion. But when they see Jesus in somebody... It's like pouring salt in their mouth. They want to know what's going on. You know what? You can grow a church with good programs and great programs and powerful personalities. But a church filled with the presence of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit touches the world. It doesn't just touch a community. It touches the world. And none of those things ever take place until the fire of God is lit through some people through the spark of personal revival. That flame never climbs until there's some sparks lit in some dry, hungry hearts. So, here's the question. I want you to ask yourself this. This is not me asking you. But will it be me? Will it be me? And if it's not you, who will it be? Will it be me? Let's pray.